0: Yes, we are in Ecclesiastes. As someone has said earlier this week to me, oh, Ecclesiastes, the most millennial of all the books. <laughs> it's, uh, but don't worry. Every generation will, will get through here. We'll get it today. So, here's the deal. Uh, many of us kind of approach life and our understanding about the world with a bunch of folders, basically, right? We have nice little neat categories to make sure that we can put everything in, okay? So, you know, like uh, how to make money, how to be successful, uh, how not to anger your wife or your spouse, uh, how to be good at video games such as Fortnite and make $3 million, I still need to read more on that one, um, then there's also like how to raise good kids. And we have these nice little folders to help us be wise and figure things out. But the problem is, every once in a while, certain things don't fit in these folders. And we can't find our knowledge or our way through the world with things in just folders. It's, it's what happens when things don't go the way they're supposed to. What happens, say, when uh, tragedy strikes the righteous person? But yet, the good and and the the righteous person, the good person, and the wicked person alike, things seem to be even there. Even better, what happens when tragedy strikes the good person and spares the wicked? There is no folder for that. Even further, uh, what happens when a person you love gets cancer? There's no folder for that one. What in the world do you do when uh, that you? You, uh, your your fiancé breaks up with you days before you are to get married. What, what, there is no folder for you to do whenever your child is unexpectedly hurt or overcome with illness. What in the world do we do? You see, we are creatures, and God has made us creatures that seek understanding. We want to know things. We want to understand why it works and how it works. And then, therefore, a lot of us think, oh, it, and now I know how it works. Now I can get through the world. Right, But here's the deal. And the way Ecclesiastes is written is so that you would understand that you are limited, you are finite, and you cannot fit all the knowledge of God into your puny little brain, including my puny little brain. I like to understand everything before I actually do it, and, and it has to make sense. I've got to, like, I've got to be able to you know, know everything before I can go forward. But the thing is, is Ecclesiastes is saying, go ahead. Try it. I've already tried it. i tried to figure out everything, and guess what? It was no help to me in how I live this life, in this world. But what was a help to me was trusting the God who created me. That was the end of all things. And so, here's the deal. We have finite, little, tiny brains, and here's the deal. If we somehow had the capacity to actually understand everything God has ever made, And ever done, does that, would that even be satisfying for us? First off, it would probably cook our little noodles so much that it would just fill out of our ears and then we'd be dead, right? But, yeah, someone's touching their ears like, please don't don't happen right now. Uh, And so God's knowledge, though, we can't exhaust it. We can't know it. We can't know everything. And so what is the duty? Is it then to just kind of curl up, die, and quit? No. And so we've got we to go a little further. So what do we do, though, whenever the answers don't add up? You know, and oftentimes people are like, I need to quit and leave. This is the interesting thing recently of what we've heard about, like, ex-evangelicals and deconversion. You know, and here's the deal. Oftentimes when we don't understand things, we just want to leave and say, there can't possibly be an explanation. I want out of this. I'm checking out. But the difficulty with that is it puts yourself in the position of omniscience, saying that you need to know everything in order to live a fully satisfied and fulfilled life. Ecclesiastes is saying you don't need to know everything. In fact, it would blow your brain if you did. Okay. More than that, if we are sitting there, we actually put ourselves in the judgment over God and the way he has ordered this world. In one sense, you say that you know better or you know more. And obviously, we we can just get rid of the belief in God and everything will be fine. And I can be the own judge of my own world because I have determined for myself that obviously they are wrong and I am right. You see what that puts yourself into? It puts yourself into kind of this hubristic, prideful, mildly arrogant, at least, to say I know better than God. I know better than God. And as Madeleine Langle says, though, just because we don't understand doesn't mean there isn't an explanation. What if God created the world, made an explanation, and you don't have to know everything to live a satisfied and fulfilled life. And you don't need to have everything in a neat category or a folder to make sense of the world. Oftentimes, this has happened recently, when people get disequilibriated about their knowledge of the world, they start to doubt, then they start to deconstruct everything, and then we see deconversion. And oftentimes, it is is, uh, valid for people to think this way, especially when uh, we see the sex scandals in the church. We've had friends who are mistreated, especially if they um, identify as gay, uh, if they're part of the LGBTQ community. We've seen mistreatment. we see mistreatment of women under the guise of biblical roles. We've seen the shaming for people of sin, like you've, you've got to get it together, you've got to get it right. And we don't have a category for that. Like we see what was supposed to be godly, these people who are mistreating other people who are like, that's just mistreatment. And so people rightly ask the questions, why is that happening? And people then, when they don't get the explanation that they want or they desire or even that they need, just a little bit of an explanation, become weary and they wander off and they stop going to church. You know, in this world, we, we, see, we, we've, uh, I, we see people kind of going through life without a belief in God and with kind of trusting in themselves and, and trying to have their own knowledge about the world, but they can't possibly igno- exhaust it or know enough. And so once I heard my wife and sister-in-law talking, my sister-in-law says, I don't understand how people can say there's no God in the world. It's absurd. Look at the world. All right? But in reply, my wife said something more striking. Do you know what is even more absurd? Being a Christian, believing in God, and then living as if no God exists. There are many of us who are Christians, loved by God, but still find our meaning or hope created in, in the created things. So, here's the question. Here. We have serious doubts, don't we? We all have serious doubts. I have serious doubts at times, and I wonder, right? And so, do I then go and say, obviously, there's no answers for my serious doubts, and then do I go and check out, no, or rather, how do you doubt as a limited human being, knowing that you're not going to know everything? And so how do we, the, the preacher the, uh, of this text, uh, the convener is one way to translate it, brings you in and says, let's talk about this together. Let's reason or think about it together. How do we doubt? How do we make sense of all these things? And he says, well, come on along. And he says, Let's show, let me show you what does it look like to doubt as a limited human, human being. Here's how you do life. He speaks to the common human, everyday man, who's probably skeptical, skeptical about a lot of things and skeptical of kind of trying to find any man-made meaning in anything they do. So there's three key phrases that you need to look at, right? First is this one called vanity or meaninglessness, right? So that's the first phrase. The second phrase is the phrase, uh, under the sun. Under the sun. And the third phrase is to seek out or to search. So let's go first to that first phrase. So vanity or meaninglessness. What it is is a word that means wispy or like smoke. So trying to find uh, the, the reason for anything in this world is like trying to catch smoke. It's like a chasing after the wind. It's not substantial, it doesn't have matter, it can't possibly give you the answers for what you want. Let's look at the next term. The next term is under the sun, and it happens throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and it means within this world, it's what we would generally understand as the secular world. It's the world we have in front of us that we can perceive with our senses. Can we find the meaning for life, the meaning for living, the reason for anything in my life here under the sun? And his answer is, go ahead, I've already tried it. It's not going to work. And then lastly is this, one, is this word to seek out or to find. It means to search thoroughly. And you see this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And so he says, I have sought out. I have searched. And so, let us look at it. Let us think. And here's the deal. When it comes to the search of meaning, or of meaning for the world, for everything, to have a nice category, for, for, for a nice folder, there's kind of three ways to do it, right? There is first the way of what I would call uh, absurdity, or the way of just being naive. The way of naivete, Then there is the way of what I would call despair. And then there's the way of being a child. So the way of naivete, the way of of despair, and the way of a child. Um, And so the big question is, can anything under the sun give meaning to our lives? There's that way of naivete or ignorance, the way of despair, and the way of a child. And I don't know about you, but I remember this uh, as a young person in college, first year, you had to read this pamphlet called The Myth of Sisyphus. Okay? And in The Myth of Sisyphus, it was this: uh, Albert Camus talks about Sisyphus who was punished by the gods to push this rock up to the top of a hill. Brr. All right? And then at the end of his task, the rock would roll back down right? And then Sisyphus' task was to roll it back up, and that was the purpose of his life, right? So Camus takes us as an allegory for every one of us uh, who are trying to search out meaning under the sun, right? He's trying to search out meaning under the sun. And Camus, he decides, well, you know what? How about we just kind of chuck it all? And here's the thing, okay? Let's pretend. Let's make believe that Camus was actually happy. And it was a lot of fun pushing it up the hill. And you're like, that just sounds ridiculous. He's like, what you need to do, Camus says, is to embrace the absurd. Embrace the absurd. And people are like, are you crazy, man? But that's the thing. If there was no God, who cares? Just enjoy what it is. People will talk about Camus, they're like, eh, you know, crazy Europeans again. Here you go, Vincent. He's also a playwright, he's moody. You never know, you know? And so everyone would then say uh, it's either best to remain ignorant. Or it's best to go down the way of despair. And so verses 4 through 7 of Ecclesiastes 1 explains this kind of like frivolousness of trying to find meaning in anything. 4 through 7, a generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The wind blows to the south, or it, uh, verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down, it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. It's never exhausted. It never ends. It just keeps going in circles. And so is your idea of trying to find meaning under the sun. It'll just go in circles, and so should we just assume that it's all absurd and just smile as we go about our ways of being in the world? Um, or, to put it in a good American phrase by the popular song artist, K dollar sign, ha. <laughs> let's just live for the night like we're going to die young. Like a bunch of Americans were like, let's just kind of go for it. You know, who cares? We don't need to really find the reason behind everything. Let's just party. All right? Let's just have fun while we're doing it. And if we die at the end, who cares? All right. So that is one way people go, the way of ignorance. You know, and so every Christian and non-Christian is caught up in this idea of like, let's live the American dream, get a big house, big car, 2.4 kids, or if you're in Colorado, let's make sure that we got a sweet six-person tent so all our homies can get together on a big backpacking trip onto the top of a mountain, then we could see the sunrise, and maybe I could feel God's a little closer to me at that moment, and make sure that I pump water so that I don't get sick out of whatever's here, and I can have this big adventure experience. And that is what the meaning of life is about and the writer of Ecclesiastes is like how many times are you going to be able to hike up a mountain you're going to stop, you're going to be tired it's not, you're not going to find meaning there and so here's the deal it, the world seems circular it's going ha- to keep going right? and so a lot of people just say it's ignorance is bliss And the way of the world is like what Mary Poppins says and every job that must be done there's an element of fun you find the fun and snap. The job's a game. And, you know, and then it's sung. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake. A lark. A spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. Medicine go down. And so what she's saying is, this world is a bitter pill. We're all going to die. And so the best way to live then is just have a little sugar with it. Find the fun. Right, and everybody's all like, hey, everyone's singing along and enjoying Mary Poppins, and I'm sitting there like, is this existential, having an existential crisis? And I'm like, is this all there is? <laughs> that we're just gonna have a little sugar and the- help the world go down? This is awful. My kids are all singing, and I'm all like, eh, I'm nervous. No, no, we shouldn't remain ignorant. Ignorant is it really just bliss? No. Ignorance is not bliss. you know that you know for a fact that you cannot ignore this. you can 't ignore death. you can 't just keep on smiling every time someone gets sick and hurt and that your friends are abused and that maybe you 've had abuse. Why in the world does this happen? Do you just smile over that? Do you know what that 's like? I went actually i 'm still going on with the check engine light soon, okay, so the check engine light soon is on. You know, I actually know the problem. But anyway, um, here's the deal. I just, for a while there, I ignored that the check engine light was on. In all of our lives, if you're living in ignorance, just kind of going through the motions, you're living with a check engine light on. You haven't stopped to think about it, to find out what the problem is. And the, and the, per, and the person of Ecclesiastes then con, con, comes back. You're living in ignorance? Check this out. The hardest verses in chapter 7 says this. Two, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For, it, for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face the heart is glad, made glad. What in the world is this person saying? This is what he's saying. You live in ignorance? Here's the deal. You want to live that way? Go ahead. But... When the day of trouble comes, it is better for you to go mourning because you can learn more about this world that way than to just keep being ignorant. Trouble will come. Difficulty comes. And you can't just remain ignorant. He challenges you. What do you do? You ain't got a folder for the tragedies in life then. You can't just smile it away. Lince Redding, a New Zealand-based art director, wrote this, challenging the ignorance of things. And he was rich, he made it well, and every, you know he did well. I've read this before. It turns out, he says, right before dying of esophageal cancer, he says, it turns out I didn't actually like my old life nearly as much as I thought I did. I know this now because I occasionally catch up with my old colleagues and workmates. They fall over each other to enthusiastically show me the latest project they're working on, ask my opinion, proudly show off their technical prowess, which is, you know, not at least inconsiderable, I find myself glazing over, but politely listen as they brag about who's had the least sleep, the most take-out food, I haven't seen my wife since January. One might say I can't feel my legs anymore, and I think I have scurvy. But another three weeks, and this project will be done, and I'll be famous and rich. It's got to be done by then, or the clients because the clients going on holiday. What do you think? What do I think? He says, "I think you're all stinking mad." He uses more colorful words. Deranged, so disengaged from reality, it's not even funny. You know, it's just a commercial. He's working in marketing. It's just a commercial. Nobody gives a care. This has come to quite a shock. I can tell you, I think, I've come to the conclusion that the whole thing was a bit of a con, a scam, an elaborate hoax. Countless nights and weekends, holidays, birthdays, school recitals, and anniversary dinners were willingly sacrificed at the altar of some intangible but infinitely worthy higher cause. It would be all worth it it in the long run, we would say. But this was a con. Convincing myself that there was nowhere I'd rather be than just a a coping mechanism. I can see that now. It wasn't really important or any product of consequence at all. How could it be? We were just shifting product, our product, client's product. We met quotas. We fed the beast, as I called it, on my, my more cynical days. So was it, was it worth it? Well, of course not. It turns out it was just advertising. There was no higher calling. So his work was meaningless, he says, in the end. All those late nights, all those sacrificing of his time with his family, kids. He was being consumed by esophageal cancer. And he says it's all just a con. He says stop playing around. Outside of God, developing any kind of of truth for your life, any kind of meaning ends up just being self-righteous. And we can't imagine to manage to live that way. The only way to enjoy life is not to ignore the Creator, but to acknowledge His upholding of all things. It says this in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil and his hard labor." This also I saw was not vanity, but was from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See, the Bible's not anti-enjoyment and having fun and celebrating and enjoying this good world. But you've got to acknowledge where it comes from. So you don't have to live in ignorance. So everyone's like, okay, well... If we can't find meaning in this world, then Vince, shouldn't we just despair? Because at least even Ecclesiastes says that is more uh, consistent, more coherent. He says it's better to go, you know, around with a frowny face than with a fake smile, ignoring everything, right? And so, do we despair? You know, what is despair like? Well, despair is like a millennial when they get their first student loan payback statement and they compare it to their first paycheck. That's called despair. You're like, well, that ain't going to work. All that education, I'm never going to pay that back. And then it's also like a baby boomer who had to live in the constant realization that there was a possibility of nuclear war at all times. My dad one time sat me down and I think he had way too much to drink and he said, son, I'm sorry. And I'm like, why? He's like, because at any moment, the Russians can nuke us. And I'm like, what in the world? I'm like three years old. I'm like, this is my first memory. So you imagine, now you know why I'm the way that I am. And so, you know, my baby boomer dad, that was his thing. He's like, oh my gosh, I tried to be comfortable my entire life, but I can't control the Russians. And so, you know, and that was despair. And then there's a Gen Xer who watched planes fly into the world trade towers and then they watched their retirements evaporate during the 2008 financial crisis and go oh no i'm going to be working forever you know and they realize that they're never going to have the status they're never going to drive the sweet bugatti that they ever that they always thought they would have that they're going to drive a minivan full of kids who are going to have enough student loan debt to cause them to go into bankruptcy that's despair okay and so every generation feels it you know and despair was the predominant majority of Europe after World War 1 and World War 2 unlike America Europe actually had to fight the wars on their front lawn you know, it was in their backyards. It was every part of it. So they saw firsthand what kind of all this like positive thinking, modernity, and technology. They saw how it could destroy everybody. And they became disillusioned. And they're like, well, obviously progression is not going to take us anywhere because we're going to kill everybody and each other with everything that we've got. So they became disillusioned. You know, and they couldn't find any meaning in this moment, and so that's why you have all these great philosophers, especially the Russian ones, that just make you sad and depressed. You know, and there's a there's a good way. Uh, the, here here's how it kind of falls out right now. You know, in Europe, if you're a psychiatrist and a and this is a report from the Washington Post that says this: if you're a psychiatrist and a chronically depressed patient told you he wanted to die, what would you do? In Belgium, you might prescribe this vulnerable, desperate person a fatal dose of, of sodium uh, the, theopentol. Between 2000, October 2007 and December 2011, 100 people were, went to a clinic in Belgium's Dutch-speaking region with depression schizophrenia, in several cases Asperger's syndrome, just seeking to be euthanized. They couldn't bear to live in this desperate, despair-filled world. Just couldn't handle it anymore. And I think sometimes some of us are feeling that way too. We feel that despair. And if that's true and and you feel at times just overcome, please come talk to me. If that's where you're at, you're struggling, like I can't wake up in the morning, I don't want to wake up in the morning. You feel that way, come talk to me. And so Europe has been feeling this for a long time Notice the despair in chapter 1, verse 8. Everything is filled with weariness. The point is that we cannot be satisfied. We can't be satisfied with everything in this world. Verses 9 and 10, there's nothing new. Sounds like a cynical person. Everything dies and will be forgotten. Um, Downton Abbey kind of put this really, really well. Um, Yes, I watch basically a British soap opera. Okay. Matthew, one of the main characters, he's going to he, he inherit, he's gonna inherit everything. He's about to be rich and different things like that. And I knew, if, you, if you're watching Downton Abbey, please close your ears. Yeah. I knew exactly when he was about to die. And it's when he said this little little bit here. He said, said talking, to, talking to one of his valets, 10 hours crawling through the heather, English heather, and nothing to show for it. Perhaps it's a parable of life. Reminds me of the trenches in the war. Hours of inching through the mud with no discernible purpose. Life is like inching through the mud with no discernible purpose. And at that moment, I'm like, homeboy's going to die. And it's going to have no bearing on the meaning of, it's just going to mess up people. The writers have been planning it. I'm like, oh my gosh, here's what it is. Everyone's going to die. So here's the question. Can we be creatures that live in despair without the hope of ever finding meaning? And the answer is no. Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist in a Nazi concentration camp, says no. He said the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends Usually it began with a prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and was to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, though, no blows, no threats had any effect on him. He'd just lie there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him any more. So Victor Frankl also tells this illustration of an inmate who on February of, of, a, of one year had a, had in, said, I had a dream. We're going to be freed. The war will end and we will be out by March 30th. So that was his hope. Then when it became clear that it, that wasn't going to happen, by the 29th he became, became ill and ran a high temperature. So he's lost his hope begins to despair. On the 30th he went unconscious and on the 31st he died. So are we as Voltaire once quipped tortured Adams in a bed of mud and the preacher is trying to prove the opposite. He says this chapter 3 verse 9 through 13. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So you're a finite creature. You can't get everything into your head. You can't understand everything about the ways of the world and the ways God made it. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is God's gift to man. Don't despair. There is meaning. There is meaning. and There's a reason why everything happens. Here's the deal, though. Here's the deal even if we could get it into our little brains, there is no way that we would possibly understand every little ounce of it. We're too underqualified. You're not qualified to be God. Let God understand it. Let him know. You've got to acknowledge that you're too underqualified. You can't do it. But you could trust that he has an explanation, that he knows. And so the conclusion then is that we go the way of the child. You know, we can't find meaning under the sun. So, but chapter 12, verses 13 through 14 says, This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Sometimes we see wicked people get away with it. Guess what? God will get to it in the end. It'll come to light. We could trust him. You don't feel like you've gotten the judgment and the verdict that you deserve, you think? God will bring it about in the end. Let him be the judge. You don't have to understand everything. We, can, we don't have to live without hope. And so what do we do? Here's the deal. If you can't live with the conclusions of your premises, whether it be that we should just kind of have this ignorant life or this uh, despairing life. If we can't live with those premises, then we must question the premises. Given the preacher's point that under the sun, all is vanity, it's unsubstantial, it's meaningless, that it isn't really gonna matter anyway, under the sun, then you've gotta live for something bigger. And here's the deal. You don't find meaning by going up. Meaning has to come down to you. And that that is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to create your own meaning. You don't have to create your own understanding in the world. You don't have to be God. You don't have to understand everything. You could sit and receive it and you can actually let it happen to you. Because you know the one who has it all together can actually have control and actually do something good with it. Let me put it this way. My first child, we'd waited 14 months to conceive him. And it was painful, it was hard, it was sad until we found out one day, hey, he's coming, it's gonna be awesome. We were joyous, it was awesome. We drew the shades and had a party. And then we went to our first ultrasound meeting and we were joyous, we got to see him. It was beautiful, hear his heart. It was so great. But then the ultrasound tech started uh, making all these weird measurements and was really silent. And I sat there, and I'm like, what? What is she doing? What in the world is she doing? Ultrasound tech says, I need to bring the doctor in. My heart sank, and I'm like, why does this happen to me? I'm I'm working off her campus ministry. God, aren't you supposed to kind of come through for me? So I kept praying, Lord, help us. And when the doctor came in, the doctor told us, your uh, son has a genetic birth defect. Actually, he's got multiple ones, we would find out. And they said, in fact, the, another doctor said, this doesn't have to be your child. In fact, there's it, good chance that he is, uh, he's got some kind of a genetic defect that is not compatible with life. I sat there. I'm like, 14 months. How, how in the world am I supposed to make sense of this? How God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen? It's painful, it hurts. And I think the wisest person in the whole, whole situation was my wife, who at all at one time understood that the good news of the gospel was that God gave his own son his own son and we don't understand what in the world that is supposed to mean but here's what happens we can trust him so my wife understood this she said I don't know what's happening I don't know why this happens we may never know why this happens but I know this because of the cross I know God is good and I know that he loves me So whatever may come with this God's got it and I don't have to understand this that's the deal. I have never understood why the things have happened to my son. He's born. He's normal as all get out, if you know him. But why did that happen? I don't know. And do I have to know, in order to live a life, a faithful life, a fulfilled life? No. I could be a finite creature that doesn't have all the stinking answers. And the good news of the gospel is we see on the cross God's goodness through what is uncertain for everybody. We're like, what in the world is going on? Here's a Savior. He's going to die. Why? They don't understand. And later, when Jesus shows up, they understand. There's an explanation. And here's the deal. We are limited we're finite. We mess up. We're not qualified to be God. But God's qualified to be God. He's the only one who could dream up giving us his life and taking our sin. And he does it freely, not because you've earned it, but because he loves you. And the surest sign of that love is the cross, and it is symbolized and signed here at this meal. So for those who are living just kind of in ignorance, you can actually have true integrity. You don't have to live in ignorance. For those in despair, there can actually be real hope. For those uh, people who kind of need to come alongside those living in despair and ignorance, you know you've got power. Because there is an explanation. And it comes down to you in the person of Jesus Christ. For those searching for meaning in a meaningless world, it means that meaning has come to find you in the person of Jesus Christ. It's the message of Ecclesiastes. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we don't understand everything. But we could see and we know your love. We cannot see and understand and know everything We cannot see and know everything about your love even. But we see it on the cross. And we know you love us. We know you are good. So we ask that you come to us in the midst of our ignorance, in the midst of our despair. We pray that you would wipe away our tears. I pray that you would hold us fast if we are wrestling with doubt and we don't know why this is happening. We can't make sense of the world around us. I pray that you would come alongside us. You would help us wrestle well. Help us to find our meaning in you. Help us to know that meaning, the understanding of the world, has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Come to infuse all the parts of this creation with his meaning. Help us to rejoice in that. In Christ's name, amen.